Welcome to episode number 28 of Leadership Lessons, Helping Pastors Lead Better. My name is Todd Gray, Executive Director and Treasurer for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. The KBC was created by churches for churches to help churches, Dr. Greenway, you know this mission, reach Kentucky and the world for Christ. My guest today is Dr. Adam Greenway, who is no stranger to Kentucky. Dr. Greenway has pastored in Kentucky, served as an interim pastor in multiple churches. He is, was a former dean of Graham School, as well as on faculty at Southern Seminary here in Louisville. He has served as KBC president, has served on the administrative committee, and as parliamentarian for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Dr. Greenway is now serving as president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Adam is married to Carla. They have two precious children, Wade and Caroline. Adam is a connoisseur of all things barbecue. He knows where to find the best barbecue in Kentucky and probably in Texas. Dr. Greenway, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We, we appreciate you here in Kentucky. Thank you, Dr. Gray. It's great to be with you. Certainly uh, always good to be back with uh, my Kentucky Baptist uh, family. Uh, so thankful for the 17 years that uh, God gave Carla and I together in uh, the Commonwealth. And anytime there's the opportunity to uh, have a conversation with Kentucky Baptist uh, partners in the mission, I'm honored to, uh, to be a part of that. So thank you for having me. You are welcome. I reached out to a number of Kentucky Baptist pastors and leaders to ask if they have particular questions. One of the themes that kept coming up was that several remembered you saying uh, frequently, in fact, that you, while you weren't from Kentucky, that you got here as quickly as you could, and right. now we're wondering why you left. <laughs> well, uh, uh, the only reason I, I left, of course, is the only reason that I ever came, which is the calling of God. Uh, it certainly was not out of a desire to leave uh, Kentucky in, in many negative sense, but um, uh, growing up as a native of Central Florida, uh, I never expected I would live in Kentucky, but God in his kindness uh, called uh, me there in uh, 2002 and then made it abundantly clear that uh, he was calling uh, us to a new work in uh, 2019, but have nothing but uh, fond memories and gratitude and uh, and thankful for the years uh, of uh, serving the Lord in that great harvest field called Kentucky. Adam, you mentioned Central Florida as being where you're from. Some of our folks know more of your background. Others may not know as much. Tell us uh, where you're from, where you grew up, and, and how you came to faith in Christ. Sure. I was born and raised in a small town in Central Florida called Frostproof, Florida. If you look at a map of the state of Florida and stick your finger about dead center both ways, that's uh, that's home. Uh, came to Christ at the age of eight through the witness of a couple doing traditional uh, Baptist door-to-door -door evangelism uh, visitation. Turned out they were the children's ministry leaders of what became my home church, the First Baptist Church there in Frostproof. And uh, through their encouragement, I attended a, a children's worship service, heard the gospel, was led in a sinner's prayer. And as much as I uh, understood as an eight-year-old boy, turned from my sin and repentance and trusted Jesus to be my Savior and Lord, but uh, wasn't uh, followed up upon in uh, a significant way. So it was some years later where I came to an understanding of what had happened when I was eight, uh, was scripturally baptized and uh, began a process of uh, discernment about what the Lord wanted me to do in, uh, in life. And that led to a, a decisive moment where the Lord made it clear he was calling me into the ministry at the age of uh, 16, uh, at 17, uh, I served as an interim pastor of a church in my uh, hometown, the first of what has become uh, 13 uh, interim pastorates at 12 different churches in six different states. Uh, uh, my motto has always been, uh, have sermon, will travel, and uh, certainly enjoy uh, interim pastoral ministry. But um, I graduated high school and then left Central Florida, went to Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, I uh, did my undergraduate degree there and then uh, came here to Southwestern Seminary in 1999 and earned my Master of Divinity degree. I uh, met my wife here. Uh, she also is a, a graduate, has an MACE degree from the seminary. And then um, had planned on staying here to do doctoral work and God through uh, providential circumstances made it clear he had a different plan and uh, called us to serve at the Baptist Church at Andover in Lexington, Kentucky in 2002. And that's how I made it to Kentucky and then did my PhD in evangelism and apologetics at Southern Seminary. 
Uh, finished that in 2007 and was uh, hired on the faculty there at that time and spent a dozen years there before being called back to Southwestern last year. So that's kind of the, that's the short version of, of, uh, of the journey, Todd. Well, I'm still back on the fact that some folks from a children's ministry at First Baptist, I missed the name of the town. Did you say the name of the town? Frostproof, Florida. Okay. That some children's folks came to your home, knocked on the door, and shared with you as an eight-year-old boy. So you and Paul Chitwood have that in common. Dr. Chitwood has a similar testimony. Folks from a local Baptist church were doing door-to-door -door ministry. Do you believe door-to-door -door is still an effective way to share the gospel? I certainly believe it can be. Uh, I think there, there are greater challenges today in terms of even just finding people at home and kind of a culture where there is less receptivity to, uh, for lack of a better term, strangers or people coming uh, to people's homes. But absolutely, I think um, uh, God can use all kinds of means in terms of how, how he draws men and women saving faith in Christ. I don't believe that there is only one correct methodology that we can use in proclaiming the gospel of, uh, of Christ. Uh, I think if we study the New Testament, we see a variety of different approaches that were used in order to share uh, an unchanging message. And I do think that uh, in many communities across our land, um, the reason why door-to-door uh, -door evangelism oftentimes is derided as not working is because nobody is working it. Uh, I, I 100% of the evangelism you don't do is ineffective, of course. So I think um, while no one single methodology is a be-all, end-all approach, I think we want to have as many resources and ways to present the gospel of Jesus credibly uh, to use at our disposal. And I think every situation is, uh, is unique, how ministry is going to look, the kind of people you're going to, to reach. Um, and I often said, serving in Kentucky for 17 years, Kentucky is a wonderfully rich uh, and diverse state. Uh, it's a different state east of I-75 than it is west of I-65 uh, and in between the Golden Triangle. Now, that doesn't mean that people are not uh, equally lost in need of, of, of a savior, but just how you approach them in terms of sharing your faith may differ in terms of the kind of cultural context or background. But I want to use every resource, every tool I can to help connect people to Christ. That, that, that's what matters most in terms of the assignment that Jesus has given to the church. One message, many methods. Uh, Adam, we are rolling around an initiative here in Kentucky that would, for lack of a better term, would be um, labeled Calling Out the Called. And so let me give you a little bit of background and I'd love to hear any of your comments and, and your thoughts. So uh, I reached out to about 120 churches re fairly recently in Kentucky who are without pastors. A couple of observations. One is our mid-sized churches, even even smaller mid-sized and larger, have no trouble finding qualified candidates to serve as their potential pastor. But our smaller churches have a hard time finding people. About 60% of our congregations will utilize bivocational pastors or men who are retired, and they're just not finding them. So we're wanting to mobilize, help pastors, recognize those in their congregations who are being called, and then possibly help pastors and or associations provide some basic training where they could get up and at least get started serving a church. Do you have any thoughts on this notion of calling out the call, how it should be done, what we should consider, and what, what, a, what a pastor should do on that front? I think the task is critically important, Todd, in terms of um, if we understand the, the New Testament uh, mandate, if you will, I believe that the uh, mission is to bring people to saving faith in Christ, to build them up in the faith, and then to boldly send them out uh, on mission. And um, particularly when it comes to the calling of individuals into Christian ministry, vocational ministry, I think it's an area where many pastors and ministry leaders have not been giving the kind of intentionality to challenging their uh, members, their congregants, the, the people under their influence to really consider, is God calling you? Is God uh, using uh, experiences and circumstances and your own study of the word to open your heart to a place to where you may be sensing God's calling you in, into ministry? Uh, we do believe that God calls men and women uh, to serve him in the context of vocational ministry. Uh, and oftentimes one of the most critical tasks of a pastor or a ministry leader is to simply to proclaim the scriptural truth about God's calling and to challenge people 
to uh, listen and to seek the Lord and to ask, Lord, uh, would you uh, send me? Uh, I, I think that's one of the, the, the things that we have to keep in mind, especially in my role here as president of a Southern Baptist Convention Seminary. Uh, we only receive people who come to us giving some testimony of not only a salvation experience, but a credible call to ministry. And so we have to depend upon churches and pastors who, in a sense, are sounding forth the note, encouraging people to consider, is God calling me? Is God calling you? And I think that's one area where, particularly as somebody who is an advocate of extending an invitation or an altar call or whatever you want to, uh, to label that as part of the time of preaching and calling for a response, we oftentimes stress the importance of coming to Christ or coming into church membership or some other point of, of surrender or decision. I, I really think we need to be just as intentional of uh, challenging people under the ministry of the word to consider is God calling you to, uh, to a deeper form of Christian service, including vocational ministry. The, the church I surrendered in, Adam, you served as interim there two or three different times, Northside Baptist in Indianapolis. Yes. Bob Latham was the pastor when I was there, and there were 40 people who had surrendered to vocational Christian ministry under his leadership long term. Bob was a native of, of Texas. In fact, his widow still still lives there. Um, yes. so, so how did that, you mentioned that you sensed a calling in age 16. How did you begin to just believe that God was calling you to pursue Christian leadership? Sure. Well, I was 14 when I came to that point of deeper understanding of what had happened when I was eight. I was scripturally baptized and I really began just seeking the Lord in terms of what um, God's plan for my life was going to be. Uh, I had, from the time I had thought about vocations, thought I wanted to go into politics and kind of had the life uh, journey mapped out uh, at that point in time. But my home church uh, had a culture of people being called out into ministry. In fact, uh, in the foyer of my home church at that time, there were uh, portraits of everybody who had been called out of our church into some kind of uh, Christian service. And there were people who were serving in even national SBC leadership roles, local church ministry roles on the mission field out of my home church, which you know, a town of 3,000 people is not uh, a mega church by any stretch of the imagination. But there had been a culture there of where uh, God's calling, vocational ministry was something that was in a sense sort of in the DNA of, of the church. And so um, as I began to get, get involved more uh, intentionally, uh, actually at that time we were without a pastor, we were without a student pastor for a, a period of time. and so. It was really kind of church and lay leadership that stepped up and uh, filled in the gap. And then we called a pastor. I remember going to him one day and uh, uh, sitting in his office and saying, how do you know when you're being called to ministry? What is a call to ministry? And uh, he looked back at me and he said, uh, well, what do you think it is? And I said, well, pastor, if I knew that, I wouldn't be coming to see you, right? I'm, I'm coming to ask the questions uh, and you're trying to ask me. And, and he said, well, uh, what, what do you think it is? And basically, he made the point, it, it's not always clearly a, a Charlton Heston audible voice from heaven, God saying, Adam, thou art the man and you are going to do, it, it doesn't work that way. And he took me back to the scriptures in terms of the Old Testament. Before you were in the womb, I, I knew you and I formed you and how God has given us gifts and talents and desires and things that he uses to craft within us a sense of calling and preparation for Christian service. But he stressed that there, there is that point where uh, you come to an understanding that God removes the desire to do anything else in life and to be satisfied or fulfilled. Uh, and that's a way in which you know God is calling you. In fact, he said, if you can do anything else in life and believe you can be fulfilled in that, do that. Because ministry is not a choice. It, it's not just another job. And uh, we soon called a youth pastor after that, that uh, he began really discipling me and kind of made similar points. And there really was an experience that I had the summer before my senior year of high school, actually as our school's delegate to uh, Boys State in Tallahassee, the mock government program, where instead of running for governor, I became the state chaplain. 
And the Lord used that experience in particular that week to uh, remove the desire to do anything else in life and to confirm he was calling me into uh, the ministry. And so I went back and uh, June 26, 1994, I went forward uh, during the uh, invitation time in my home church and publicly surrendered my life to uh, Christian ministry and service and uh, had no idea the, the journey that the Lord would take me on. I, I thought I would be a pastor because that's what I knew. Uh, and I still believe that the pastoral calling is the highest uh, calling. Anybody who steps out of the pastorate steps down, not up. Uh, I don't view my role as president of Southwestern Seminary. I know you don't view your role as executive director treasurer of the Kentucky Baptist Convention as a role that is greater than or better than being a local church pastor. The local church is still plan A and Baptist headquarters. And so uh, that's what I thought I would do. But when I surrendered to the ministry, uh, I put my, in a sense, blank check on the altar and said, Lord, wherever you call me, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And have tried to uh, be faithful to that uh, ever since that time. Adam, I'm taking notes while you're talking and I'm, I'm formulating a, um, a, a, um, a plan that makes perfect sense. So call, call out the call. We're talking about that. Cultivate, cultivate the call. Your youth minister did that for you. He discipled you and helped you understand how you could be used of God celebrate the call. I love it that your church had pictures of those who had left the congregation to go and serve in other ways. What a culture that creates, as, as you said. And, and then I think there needs to be another C that is about caring for the caring for the called. So ministry failure, one reason we lose pastors and, and Christian leaders is because of some sort of ministry failure. Years ago, Richard Foster wrote a book called Sex, Power, uh, Sex Money and Power, where he described those three areas as primary places where, where folks give way to temptation and um, disqualify themselves for ministry. Do you think those three kind of sum up the areas where leaders fall today, or would you add another a fourth or a fifth to it? Well, those three certainly are, you know, near the top of any list, I think. And, and unfortunately we, we just know the stories and the situations. Um, I, 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 would, I would add, uh, if I had to add a fourth, uh, pride, and by pride, I mean uh, the level of, um, whether it's arrogance or uh, a reliance upon the self, uh, where I confuse my identity with my job, my vocation, my position, and what happens is, uh, I, in a sense, burn out. Uh, I, in a sense, lose the uh, understanding that I'm merely an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. I don't have anything in and of myself to bring to the table except what the Lord chooses to do in and through me, how he fills me and how he uses me. But I think, unfortunately, we have at many times become so uh, professionalized and, and, and so uh, secularized to where we really do think it's all about us. And so we put an inordinate amount of pressure to perform and a pride that comes from seeking the adulation of the crowds and the like. And then when conflict comes, well, the pride that is on the part of the one in the ministry with the sinful pride oftentimes in the midst of the congregation forms a combative, combustive kind of relationship and conflict uh, erupts at that point. And all of a sudden there are casualties that result from that. One of the things I tell students and those preparing for ministry is if God is calling you, realize that there is a satanic bullseye now upon you. And the devil is not uh, uh, particular about what tactic he may use to try to take you down. But no, he will try to take you down any and every way that he can because he knows if he can take you down, there will be shrapnel. There will be collateral damage as a result from others who will be taken down as a result of seeing uh, their pastor or a ministry leader fall. And unfortunately, again, uh, doing interim pastoral ministry, consulting with churches, you've been there, I've been there, there are stories. And there are stories of people who they themselves were not involved directly, but because of brokenness and sin and failure, uh, there was collateral damage and hurt and pain uh, that happened that in a sense becomes an obstacle or a barrier in that other person's spiritual journey and that's one of my great burdens honestly uh, Todd is yeah. uh, realizing 
the nature of the spiritual warfare uh, that we are in. It, 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 to underestimate that, I think is one of the greatest travesties that can be committed in the ministry. Your former colleague, uh, Dr. Chuck Lawless, did good work on spiritual warfare. Your current colleague, yes. Jeff Orge, in his book, The Character of Leadership, he said this. He said, if you feel like you're under attack, you are. And he's referencing sexual immorality. He says, the temptation to be sexually immoral is aggressively pursuing you. So pastors are, are all the time under attack and have a have a bullseye, as you, as you said. Well, let me mention something, and, and I, I don't want to get into, I'm not asking you to, and I don't want us to get into the details because we, we just don't know. Baptist Press put out yesterday that Lifeway is in is in conflict with a former, former leader, and pastors will read that, church leaders will see it, church members will see it. How would you, how would you encourage a church leader to navigate how we think through and how we communicate regarding an issue of like this that involves an SBC uh, organization and its leadership and how they're working through a conflict? Well, you know, you, the facts aren't known. Um, Proverbs says one man's story sounds good to hear the other side of it. Any, any thoughts there that you'd share to, to help, help us out? Yeah, and I think uh, particularly for those who are watching this uh, as it's happening live, it's my understanding that there is a call board of trustees meeting that is happening later even today. So if you watch this later, you may know things that we do not know at this particular point in time, the way the news cycle uh, goes. Um, look, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I think the, the reality is um, I spent 10 years as a Lifeway trustee. I was uh, chairman of the board for two years. I have a deep and abiding love for Lifeway. Uh, I still preach from and use the CSB uh, myself. And uh, as an SBC entity head, I want every one of our SBC entities to succeed. Uh, they, they, we, we need them to succeed. What Lifeway's yeah. mission is and ministry assignment is, is a critical one in terms of um, uh, providing the kinds of resources and experiences that uh, will bless our Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. Obviously, I don't know all the particulars, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to speculate, except to say, uh, I, I wish at times uh, Southern Baptists would do more praying before we try to pontificate about uh, what ought to be done or what is happening or somebody's motives or what is going on. Uh, unless you're in the room or unless you're privy to information that others don't have, we just don't know. And I think, unfortunately, in Baptist life, our tendency at times is to always want to think the worst. Uh, and so and oftentimes we take the social media and we express that. I'm very concerned about our witness before a watching world uh, and how those who are far from God perceive those of us who claim to be walking with God and near uh, to God. So uh, I'm burdened. I'm burdened about uh, our Southern Baptist Convention of Churches, our state convention. Uh, partners. Um, obviously, uh, these are challenging times to lead in. Uh, the, the scrutiny is uh, is great. And because of social media uh, and the internet, the flow of information or misinformation uh, is rapid. Uh, and that's a different dynamic than what would have been true 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So uh, when we see things like this that we don't understand and that um, don't make sense to us, and certainly uh, have the uh, capacity to paint an entity uh, or a church or our convention in a negative light. It ought to drive us to pray. It ought to drive us to uh, call out to the Lord uh, who knows all and sees all and uh, who always judges rightly and does right uh, for the sake of his name. Adam, pray, get the facts. Uh, wait, wait for some facts to come out that we don't have. And, and I think there's like, I think I heard you say in there, there's probably a general uh, spiritual posture toward uh, all of these issues that come up that come straight out of first Corinthians 13 love requires that I believe the best about my brother until yes. I just know different and, and not to yes. not to jump to conclusions well thank you for thank you for that um, I heard a leader say yesterday of a pastor uh, who's been in a small church that he said as a small church pastor or a pastor in a smaller church he has at times felt at times felt like a second-class citizen while no one can be responsible for somebody else's feelings, where do you think that mindset comes from that someone who's working hard in a smaller congregation, uh, John Mark Clifton would say normative-sized Baptist church, uh, where do you think that comes from that a guy might might um, develop those those thoughts 
that his work is less important than someone else? And what can we do about it? Well, I think some of it probably comes from just um, the fact that we, in our humanness, are always tempted to do comparisons. We're always tempted to compare where we are with where somebody else is, what we have with somebody else has, and even uh, well-intentioned people at times, church members. I I have often said, you know, uh, Art Linkletter years ago had that great line, uh, children say the darndest things. Well, actually church people can say the darndest things. And unfortunately at times, even church members will uh, inadvertently or sometimes deliberately say things to their pastor that can make their pastor feel less than, you know, why, why, why can't you preach like Charles Stanley? You know, I watch Charles Stanley every week and why can't you preach like Charles Stanley or fill in the blank or whoever your favorite preacher or Bible teacher may, may be. And so you've got a faithful pastor uh, who may be full-time, maybe bivocational, co-vocational, who is studying, who is shepherding, who is serving and, and then gets hit with that. And, and of course, oftentimes, even within uh, Baptist life and within the broader Christian community, uh, we can tend to move into a celebrity kind of culture where uh, we look for the so-called mega church pastor, or super church pastor, or the same uh, handful of individuals who seem to always get the invitations to speak at conferences or events or are held up as models and exemplars. And, you know, if my church doesn't measure up to their church, if, if my ministry doesn't measure up to theirs, well then, and what am I doing wrong in the sense of inadequacy? And, and again, the enemy loves I think to do discouragement by comparison uh, and competition. And one of the things that I think all of us have to remind ourselves is, you know, uh, we're not in competition with anybody else except the enemy. Uh, if, if, if that person is with us, as Jesus said, if they're proclaiming the message, if they're fulfilling uh, the mandate, then that's my brother and my sister. And I'm not in competition with uh their work that particular church that other group or, or something like that um i i often say in in my chair here at southwestern seminary you know i don't have time to run somebody else's organization tell some other leader how they need to do what they do i've got more than enough to say grace over being the president of this institution and i want to do this job not some other job come well, on brother you need to see what God's given to you, that's your calling. That's your responsibility. Of all the people God could have chosen in his sovereign mercy to be in your position in ministry, he chose you. Uh, and not just because of you, but that his glory might be displayed in and through you. So whether you're serving in Louisville or Louisa, uh, whether you're in Pikeville or Paducah, whether you're in Fort Worth, Texas or Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, it doesn't matter as long as you were in the center of God's will. Uh, that's what matters most. And, you know, uh, oftentimes people think the uh, the bigger situation, the better it is. Uh, no, it just means the bigger headaches that come. Uh, no, no situation is problem free. No, no, no uh, area of ministry or life is immune from the kind of uh, satanic uh, attack and criticism. Uh, that, that's just that's just part of it. I, I receive that. You receive that. Um, and that's why, again, one of the things that. Uh, I have a burden for uh, as a pastor at heart is just wanting to try to encourage as much as I can. Ministry is hard. Uh, it's tough. The enemy sees to that. And unfortunately, at times, even within uh, the Christian community, the Baptist family, we can be pretty tough on one another. And I want to find ways to encourage and to bless one another because we need one another now more than ever. Uh, that's the Big Tent vision here at Southwestern Seminary, which I know echoes the Big Tent vision there of my Kentucky Baptist uh, family and friends. Uh, that's where I want to give my time and energy and efforts um, is, look, you be found faithful. You do the things God's called you to do. And Jesus said, if you're faithful in these things, the reward will be great. Adam, I'm so encouraged by your comments and, and just listening to you. So grateful how God that God's put you at Southwestern Seminary. I love what you said about the next place sometimes looks more exciting. Sam Chan in his book, Leadership Pain, which by the way, was recommended to me by Dan Summerlin. Every, every person I've given it to has, has devoured it and, and loved the, the, the premise of the book. But uh, Sam Chan said that Jesus with 12 disciples had one devil, he was referring to Judas. And so he started rounding the numbers off. He said, if you pastor a hundred people, you're gonna have 10 devils. You pastor a thousand people, you're gonna have a hundred devils. Bigger the church, not necessarily uh, easier, but in some cases more, more challenging. Hey, let's talk about Southwestern Seminary. So Sure. How's COVID impacting your work? 
and uh, ha how's, how's it potentially changing theological education? Well, I'm always happy to talk about Southwestern Seminary, and um, first thing I would say is uh, COVID has impacted us like it's impacted everybody. Uh, we had to cease in-person on-campus instruction here in the spring for the first time in our 113-year history. Uh, we made it through uh, world wars and depression and conflict within and without, and yet COVID was something unlike anything we had ever dealt with. We were not able to have an in-person commencement exercise this past May for the first time in our history. And so it has brought a level of, of adversity that we've had to navigate. Now, the flip side is uh, the level of flexibility and innovation that has been shown by our faculty and our staff uh, in helping to do everything we can to keep the educational experience for our students as seamless as possible has been extraordinary. And uh, there's not been a time where we have not been able to continue in our mission of providing theological education for individuals engaging in Christian ministry. That has continued unabated. Uh, we are using more technology now than ever. We'd already begun to integrate more technology in terms of uh, online learning and hybrid courses and uh, flexible uh, learning uh, pedagogies. Uh, we have resumed in-person on-campus classes this fall. And unlike other institutions, we have not had to stop those. Uh, that's a sign of God's favor and grace as we hit the midpoint of the fall uh, semester. Our enrollment continues to be very uh, strong. Uh, and through the generosity of Southern Baptist, our financial position uh, continues to be strong. And of course, one of the things I would want to especially say to my beloved Kentucky Baptist uh, family is thank you for your continued sacrificial giving and generosity through the cooperative program. Those dollars that go from Kentucky Baptist churches through the KBC to the SBC make a real and tangible difference in that every Kentucky Baptist, every Southern Baptist student who studies at Southwestern Seminary receives an automatic 50% tuition scholarship because of the cooperative program. It's the greatest deal going in higher education uh, today. And because of state convention partners like uh, Kentucky Baptists, uh, Southwestern Seminary is able to do things that other institutions simply cannot do. But uh, the faculty here have been extraordinary. Uh, I've been very blessed to have uh, uh, a strong core of faculty here that has been joined by a number of strategic uh, uh, hires that we have uh, made here and, and very pleased with the team that the Lord is building here administratively and, and faculty wise and uh, thankful that over the years uh, we've had so many uh, Southwestern Seminary uh, alumni who have served in Kentucky Baptist uh, life and leadership and in ministry and I know we've got Kentucky Baptists who are uh, studying with us at Southwestern or considering studying with us and Obviously, there are other seminary options that they have to consider, but certainly want Kentucky Baptist to know that they've got a friend uh, in the president of Southwestern Seminary and a seminary that is committed to the same kind of vision and direction as the uh, as the KBC uh, manifests under your leadership, Dr. Gray. Thank you for that. You've been involved in a number of hiring decisions at Southwestern and, and other places where you where you serve when you and several of our, st our pastors are involved in calling a staff member themselves. Um, when you're about to make a hire or trying to fill a position, what are some things you're looking for in a, a, a good candidate? Well, uh, this is not original with me, but I, I use what I call the five C's. So uh, the right uh, convictions, the right character, uh, the right competency, the right culture, and the right chemistry. And those are not original. Uh, others have used three or four of those, but uh, putting it all five together has worked really well for me. So, you know, the right uh, convictions. Uh, are you where we are in terms of the things that matter most, the gospel, our confession, our understanding of biblical truth, scriptural truth, our understanding of our work? Are we on the same page in terms of the things that, that matter most in terms of our identity and mission? Uh, character, obviously. Uh, not just a believer, but somebody who is walking with the Lord, somebody who has a life that manifests itself in integrity, humility. Uh, those are absolutely key things. You can have right convictions, but if your character is lacking, it, it's just not going to work out. Um, the right competencies. Uh, can you do the job? Whatever the job may be. Uh, you may have uh, the right convictions, you may have great character, but if you don't have the skill set or the ability to learn uh, the skills that we need, you're going to struggle in uh, this position. And then um, culture and chemistry, both for kind of the macro and the micro issues, 
are you a fit with the institutional or the church culture that we are architecting here? And frankly, are you the kind of person that I want to work with? Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, you may have the right convictions, character, uh, competency. You may be a fit with the institutional culture, but if you're a jerk, it's just not going to work. If you're arrogant, if you're a person who has a mentality of entitlement, if every conversation always has to revolve around you and you're going to amaze us with your own brilliance and how you know blessed we would be to have you here with us, that, that, no, that's, 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 that's just not going to work. Um, and that's why the hiring process or the calling process is one that is absolutely critical for any organization, local church, convention, uh, seminary, uh, I often say here at Southwestern Seminary, uh, we're a family. Uh, the faculty is our curriculum. The institution is our people. And so if you want to know what Southwestern Seminary is, if you want to know what kind of president I am and where we're headed, we'll look at the people who work here and how they serve and hopefully how they love one another and they love the gospel and they love the mission. They love Southern Baptists. Uh, that's the kind of work that we have to do. And that's one of the things that, again, I think the hiring process has to be very deliberate because every position that you have is a sacred trust and it is better to have no person than the wrong person in those positions. I, I tell churches that the, the, the single greatest decision a local church ever makes is the calling of the pastor, lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever the title may be. And as diligently as you may be working to try to find God's man as a committee or whatever the polity may be, the devil is trying to work to get his man in as pastor of that church. And you've got to be discerning and aware. Uh, it is better to have no pastor than the wrong pastor. Um, and so be very diligent. And ultimately, it, it's a it's a matter of prayerful dependence. Uh, you can interview, you can review resumes, but ultimately, uh, as the leader, you've got to have a sense that God is bringing this person uh, to, uh, to us, to me, to our institution and, uh, and us to them. Adam, that is excellent counsel. You've been involved in a lot of hiring decisions and you've been in enough different institutions that you can answer this question if you if you wish to um, and remain and maintain complete anonymity. Have you ever made a less than stellar hiring decision personally? And if so, what do you think contributed to it? And uh, what'd you learn? What'd you learn from it? Yes. Um, and it was frankly, sometimes when there appears to be an urgent or immediate and a pressing need, and you've got to get somebody, you make the mistake of settling. Yeah. Or you convince yourself, well, you know, this person will change. Uh, maybe these won't be big issues. You know, maybe I'm not, you know, and, and oftentimes it was, I didn't listen to other counsel. And that's one of the things I think, again, as a leader, you've got to surround yourself with people and voices that can speak into your life the things that you need to hear, but that you may not want to hear. It's very easy in a leadership role, especially as a lead pastor, or an executive director or a president to where you can shut out the voices who are not going to tell you the things you want to hear. Uh, and you have kind of this echo chamber kind of effect where it, it, it's groupthink and, and they're yes individuals and there's nobody who is able to bring a different perspective. I'm the first to say, I don't have all the gifts. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnicompetent. Uh, only the Lord is. And so there are some areas where I could be wrong uh, and I need to have other voices with gifts and strengths that I don't have around me to help me uh, be able to lead in the way that God has given to me. I think mistakes I've made in hiring and in leadership have been uh, not having the right voices speaking into my life or in some cases moving too quickly in making a, uh, a decision when there was some degree of, of hesitation. Well, that'll probably save someone some trouble. Uh, our friend Dan Summerlin has a go-to question for every person he interviews, and here's what it is. He asks all future staff members if they've ever been through the fire and what did they do about it? So mm -hmm. have, how would you answer if you're sitting down with Dan and Dan's considering you for a staff position and Dan says, Adam, have you ever been through a crisis or uh, the fire? How would you answer his question? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, uh, in, in a previous uh, life, um, I was in a position where um, there were some adverse uh, conditions where um, I worked for uh, leadership that 
uh, candidly was not always uh, excited that uh, that I was around and uh, would have been happy if I would have uh, off-ramped to do something else somewhere else. And uh, to be candid at times, I was looking for an off-ramp to try to get somewhere else uh, to do something else. And it's one of those seasons of where you really do have to trust the Lord because if it uh, is dependent upon man, man can do things that um, uh, are harmful and painful and grievous. But ultimately, if you are in the ministry, if you're called of God, your ultimate responsibility and accountability is not to any uh, man or woman, it is to the Lord. And God has a marvelous way of sustaining you uh, and preserving you through that. And over a period of a couple of years, I tried to off-ramp and uh, was unsuccessful and wondered, Lord, you know, what are you doing? And, and when is this going to be over? And uh, in a way that only God could orchestrate, uh, he not only uh, took care of the, uh, of the adverse conditions, but blessed in a remarkable way and allowed for a level of uh, service and contribution that I never could have made uh, otherwise. So uh, one of the things that I think that all of us have to learn in the ministry is even in the times where it hurts, to still be willing to give God the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think at times, especially for those of us who may have a little more uh, uh, strong personality and, and uh, uh, attention to detail and like to be uh, in control perhaps, uh, we wanna be the ones making everything happen. And God has a marvelous way of reminding us at times, uh, we're not sovereign, he is. And to give him the benefit of the doubt to where uh, when it is his time and his purpose, uh, he can uh, rule and he can overrule. Uh, he can overcome things that may seem impossible with, uh, with human agency and, and effort. And um, I, I would not choose to relive that fire experience, if I could put it that way. But, uh, but I learned a lot. And one of the things I'll add to that, Todd, is uh, pain sensitizes you as a leader in a way nothing else does. I lead differently as a president and CEO today because of some uh, pain that I experienced in a past life. And uh, that makes me uh, a better leader, not because I would have chosen to go down that path, but because I'm mindful of as a leader, I always have the capacity either to inflict pain or to own pain. And as much as it depends upon me in a Christian environment, particularly in a Southern Baptist environment, um, I wanna be one who's doing everything I can not to inflict pain. I think one of those grievous realities in the church and in ministry is there are environments uh, where our mission may be very uh, noble and gospel focused and biblically faithful, but the organization or the church or the culture itself may be soul destroying and toxic and ungodly. And um, as much as it depends upon me, uh, that is uh, everything that I want to reject and repudiate in terms of uh, my life and leadership. Adam, that is that's outstanding, and um, thank you for for being candid. Um, Je your again, your colleague Jeff Orge has written the painful side of leadership. Sam Chand on leadership pain. Both make the case that God uses pain to shape leaders for greater assignments. You may have to add your thoughts to that at some point in written written form. I'd love to read a book if you if you feel led at some point to share share that. Hey, let me ask you. Let me give you some topics and just take a minute on each of these because okay. I'd like for you to to touch on them. Um, social media, what would you say to pastors and church leaders about social media? Uh, use it, but be careful. Uh, I think today social media is a part of our uh, work. Um, I use it. Our institution uses it. It's been very helpful for us in terms of telling the story of Southwestern in terms of recruiting and, uh, uh, and the like. But uh, some of the best tweets are the ones I never click publish on. Uh, and I think that's just something to keep in mind. It, it, you know, anything you say on social media can and will be used against you. And so be judicious. Um, I, I remind myself and I remind my colleagues here, you know, there is never a time when I use social media that I'm not identified as the president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm never off the job. I'm never off the clock. Uh, I'm always on the job. And so no matter how much I may, you know, want to claim, well, that's just my opinion or whatever else, uh, I want to be very 
guarded and mindful of the fact that I represent an institution that I love dearly and most importantly, our Lord in terms of how I tweet or post on Facebook or Instagram. So use it, but be very judicious uh, uh, with it. If there's a check in your spirit, then then find out why that why that check is there. Possibly screenshot your potential tweet, send it to somebody else for their for their counsel. Um, on politics and pastors being vocal in political time, we're in the the silly season right now. Uh, you know, I've heard someone say every election is the most important election ever. It feels that way in our day. That's not to undermine in any way negate the importance of a presidential election. Elections have consequences. What would you say to pastors about their 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 public comments regarding uh, political life? Again, I think every pastor has to do what um, uh, that pastor was led to by conviction. Uh, and I support and uh, defend the right of pastors to exercise uh, their convictions and in their leadership. Uh, Baptist history is replete with examples of where Baptist leaders of yore have spoken prophetically and passionately about uh, political issues and matters uh, related to um, morality and uh, ethics and religious liberty and the like. And I think that um, our calling is to speak boldly and prophetically on the issues uh, of the day. I think any time and every time that we are able to keep the focus upon the issues, uh, particularly the issues that we are able to tie to rightly uh, interpreted chapter and verse, from scripture, we are on safe and solid ground. Um, I, I think particularly in an election season, uh, there is so much attention upon the things of Washington and the White House and government, not to be, uh, you know, cliche, but the only real hope for America is not gonna be in whoever is the next occupant in the White House. It is only gonna come from what is being preached and proclaimed at the church house. And so I don't want to, as a preacher and proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do anything that diverts me away from my primary task of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to speak to uh, political issues as uh, is required, uh, and certainly I'm going to try to speak uh, prophetically into the political process. But I try to uh, not give a lot of attention or focus upon individual personalities, but to always stick to platforms and philosophies and issues, because that really is uh, where I think our responsibility lies as uh, as ministers of the gospel and Christian uh, pastors. Adam, regarding criticism, every leader gets criticized. If you're not being criticized for something, you're probably not doing a whole lot. Have you found yourself in a time of intense criticism? And uh, if so, what did you do during that time? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, it, it comes with a job, uh, not just this job, though it certainly has come with this job, but uh, but in previous positions as uh, as well. Um, to your point, I often say, if you don't want to be criticized, say nothing, do nothing, change nothing, and be nothing. Uh, that's not me. Uh, and in my case, uh, particularly, uh, I've been pretty transparent, particularly with our uh, board uh, and our trustee leadership about in the search process, if you call me here, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm not going to do. Here's how we're going to lead. Here's how we're not going to lead. And I've tried to uh, to live up to that and be consistent with that. Um, I often say it to leaders, if you are not willing to take the heat from making the decision, then you do not have, I believe, the ability to make the decision. Uh, and I'm happy to be criticized for the things that I've done or the things that people think I should uh, have done. Um, and again, God at times can use constructive criticism to uh, cause me to reflect and uh, to perhaps uh, adapt. But uh, my own view uh, is it, it takes very little to armchair quarterback to criticize, especially through the anonymous uh, letters that come. Uh, people who want to, uh, again, through, you know, uh, various uh, means, you know, the, you know, people are saying that whatever it may be, but they never want to give names to these people or they never want to uh, encourage these people. And particularly in the context of the church, uh, whenever people want to come to you to criticize the leader, the first response I think you should always have is, well, have you talked to the pastor? <laughs> have you expressed your concerns to, to, that, to that person? Because uh, a complaint that is never expressed to the one who can change or make the decision is not a complaint, it's gossip at that point. And gossip is sin. 
So, uh, but yes, I, I think particularly the higher the level of public visibility, perhaps the uh, post of leadership you've been entrusted with, the easier of a target you are for criticism. And again, especially through social media because of the drive-by tweet uh, phenomenon and, and other things. You know, uh, I don't try to spend a lot of time on, on that. I have people who, again, will uh, come to me and tell me if they think that there are things that I need to uh, reconsider or to do differently. And I certainly try to seek wide counsel before making uh, major decisions. Certainly in the 19 months plus that I've been president here, we've made a lot of decisions and uh, there are people who have cheered us and a, a few who have complained. And uh, that's part of the life and the nature of, uh, of leadership, as you indicated. Have you ever had to issue an apology, Adam, to your board or a church or a group of folks that you were trying to lead? And, and if so, what are some traits of a, when a leader has to apologize, how should um, he or she go at it? Uh, I think if you haven't had to apologize for something in life or ministry, you're probably not being uh, authentic or honest. Um, because again, the reality is uh, all of us have play feet, all of us will make mistakes, all of us can do things better. And uh, none of us has any right to claim any infallibility uh, when it comes to, uh, to decision making. So I think one is as much as is possible to just be as upfront and honest about, uh, I am sorry, uh, I should have done it this way. Uh, I should not have done that. If I could do it over again, I would do this. Um, I, I found certainly Southern Baptists are a generally forgiving lot if they believe they are being told the truth with a repentant, uh, penitent heart. Yeah. Uh, where people get into trouble is when uh, there is an unwillingness to acknowledge that I could be wrong. Uh, there is another way of looking at uh, at this, or the timing could have been different, or we could have had a better plan uh, this way. Um, and that's one of the things I think that uh, for all leaders, it, it's just like uh, I heard years ago from a leader, there are these uh, four three word phrases that should often be used in the context of, uh, of marriage. And those uh, three or those three word phrases are, uh, uh, I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me, I love you. Good counsel. You know, that, marriage. that works immensely. That, that changes uh, about 99% of issues in marriage, those, those yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think even in ministry, I, I think if 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 if, yeah. if those kind of words of grace and humility flowed more freely, I think we'd see far less conflict, far less dissension, far less disruption uh, within our our tribe. Adam, you probably just helped a pastor or two keep their job. Maybe a, a state executive director, treasurer, keep his keep his job with that council. So good good work. Thank you for doing that. Hey, a couple of more real quick questions, and I want to ask you to pray for Kentucky Baptist uh, SBC life in general. Are you encouraged or discouraged? Where do you see us trending in the next three to five years? Well, I'm generally encouraged because uh, uh, I'm an optimist uh, and I have read the back of the book and we still win. So uh, in general, I'm encouraged about what's happening in SBC Live today. There are so many signs of encouragement, right. even in the midst of a global pandemic, that give me great hopefulness. Uh, even uh, today, again, as we're taping this, uh, our friend Paul Chipwood, your predecessor in office, uh, my entity head colleague, tweeted out that uh, even in the midst of COVID-19, the International Mission Board didn't just meet but exceeded their revenue budget for this preceding fiscal year. That is a hallelujah, thank you, Jesus moment because of what that represents in being able to keep missionaries on the field, pushing back the darkness of lostness that the light of the gospel of Jesus might shine for people who've never even heard about him. And that doesn't happen apart from the sacrificial generosity of Kentucky Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, and they're giving through the cooperative program. They're giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So I celebrate that. Uh, I celebrate what's happening here uh, on our campus as I see students who, even in the midst of adverse conditions, are continuing to follow God's calling in theological education, to study to show themselves approved, to serve in church life, to shepherd their families well, to navigate circumstances and issues that would have been unimaginable even just a year ago. Uh, that encourages me. It encourages me when I see what is happening across our broader Southern Baptist landscape, where I think we have so many opportunities before us to work together, to cooperate together, to do more together than we ever could uh, alone. And 
I want to be the kind of Southern Baptist that's always working to build bridges rather than to burn them, to find ways to cooperate rather than to separate. That doesn't mean that there aren't uh, differences and, and issues that come up and uh, are there things that uh, I wish were different in various elements of Southern Baptist life? Of course. But I think as uh, we navigate into state convention season here, even though that's going to look different because of COVID, as we look towards next year in Nashville for our SBC annual meeting, which will be the first time in two years, that we'll have been together as a broader Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. Uh, I'm encouraged. Uh, I see what the Lord is doing across the generations. I see a hunger uh, for authenticity, a hunger for uh, the gospel, a hunger for uh, the truth of God's word, a hunger to make a difference now, uh, a sense of urgency. And we find ourselves now a sense of the emptiness and the brokenness of all the other things that we can give our time and attention to that do not satisfy. The only answer still is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have been entrusted with that gospel. And so in your role as a state convention executive director, our convention of churches there in Kentucky, our role as a seminary, uh, we have the unspeakable joy of being on the front lines of training, of equipping, of reaching. Uh, I can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else doing anything else at this point in time. Amen. Uh, Carl F.H. Henry said the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We know the gospel is good news all the time. Um, but for the lost person, it's only good news if it gets there in time. And, and um, working together, we can get the gospel to every every person, uh, I believe, in the world. I believe God can use us in that way. Uh, Adam, you, you interviewed me two different times. Once was when, when I was a, a doctoral student at Southern Seminary. That was, an, that was an interesting time. And that interview prompted a future interview where I was interviewed to work with KBC. And you asked me, the first question you asked was to, uh, to uh, if I could explain the significance of J.R. Graves in Baptist Life in Kentucky and, and explain the tenets of landmarkism. And I'm not going to ask you to do that because uh, while I would have struggled to do it, I, I could exp explain his significance. You could do it easily. But I will ask you this question about Kentucky Baptist Life. Uh, is the best barbecue in Kentucky or in Texas? Uh, well... Uh, Obviously, was, a more difficult question. <laughs> there is some wonderful barbecue in Kentucky, and uh, you've already mentioned our dear friend uh, Dan Summerlin, uh, and I want to give a shout out to him on here as well. Uh, there in uh, Paducah, my friend Ben Stratton, of course, would have appreciated uh, that question that uh, I asked you, that you just asked me again. Also, there in West Kentucky, the the further west you go in the Commonwealth, the better the barbecue gets. I'm going to say that with uh, unambiguous uh, clarity. As it for, is just true. Uh, and I'm thankful for uh, for that. Uh, Honestly, say, that's really not up for debate. That is not up for debate. Uh, and I will say anytime and every time I have a chance to get back into Western and West Kentucky, and those are not the same, uh, I'm always thankful to have uh, the barbecue that uh, I can find there in the, that great part of the Commonwealth. Well, you have lots of good friends here that, that love you and appreciate you, and we're grateful to hear your calling to Southwestern. Don Mathis said to tell you hello. Uh, as well as numerous others. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for leading Southwestern Seminary. When I'm asked the question, how do I see SBC trending in future years? It's easy for me to say that I see it trending toward evangelism and toward theological uh, conservatism because of men like yourself leading at the highest places in our, our national life. And so I'm grateful for God shaping over you as a leader. That didn't come easily. His assignments, each of those were making you the person that you are today grateful for those, for those folks who put up with you when you were a 17-year-old preacher. I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for them as well. Um, thank you for your service. Would you pray for Kentucky Baptist as we end our time? I would be honored to. Thank Father, you. in Jesus' name, what a blessing it is to be together this afternoon. And Lord, at whatever time that people may be watching uh, this Facebook Live recording later, Lord, I'm thankful for uh, the Kentucky Baptist Convention of Churches. Uh, Lord, since 1837, uh, coming together to reach Kentucky and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful, Lord, for a heritage of faithfulness and fidelity to scripture and to your truth and to the urgency of the gospel, of getting the gospel to every home across the Commonwealth and from the Commonwealth to the world. I'm thankful for Todd Gray and for raising him up to serve as executive director treasurer for such a time as this. I pray your blessings upon him and Connie and their family, upon all the Kentucky Baptist family, uh, Lord, so many friends that uh, I love and miss who continue to serve you in Kentucky Baptist life. I pray that they would know that they have uh, someone here at Southwestern Seminary 
who is cheering for them, praying for them. And they have an institution here that uh, desires to do all we can to serve and to bless uh, Kentucky Baptist churches and Kentucky Baptist life. I pray, Lord, that even in the midst of this COVID season, that you would continue to motivate and mobilize us with an urgency. Tell somebody about Jesus, how they can have their sins forgiven, how they can go to heaven and have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up churches across the Commonwealth who will work to do everything they can to make it as humanly impossible for anybody to die in their communities and to go into a Christless eternity. I'm thankful, Lord, for what you have done. Thankful, Lord, for the 17 years you gave me as a Kentucky Baptist. Uh, Lord, Father, bless and uh, encourage our pastors. Others may be discouraged in this season. May they know that you are not done with them. And then truly, Lord, the best is yet to come. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. We pray these things by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to Leadership Lessons with Dr. Todd Gray. Find past episodes on our website at kybaptist.org slash leadership lessons.